you need to make sure that what you're spending is going to justify the return. So typically people, small business, only use that as a device because they think it will bring sufficient pressure to bear on the recipient to deal with them in some way. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to another COVID-19 update of Tax Talks, update number 13. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. As a small business, you or your clients usually have four major expenses. Your staff, your lease, tax and your suppliers. You got wages and salaries covered, at least to some extent, through the JobKeeper payments. You got your lease payments covered, at least to some extent, through the Commercial Tenancies Code and the resulting rent reduction. And you got the ATO's time extensions and reductions of GIC and more to take care of your tax. But what about your suppliers? What happens if you no longer need the goods you ordered or you can't pay? And what happens on the other side when your clients cancel or can't pay? How does contract law handle the COVID-19 crisis? This is the question Jeff Steen of Brown Redstein Lawyers in Sydney will discuss with you. Has contract law changed in any way since COVID-19? No, generally the same rules apply. I know that you've already talked to some people about a couple of the special areas where the uh, law is changing, so where the, the government has intervened. But apart from that, the common law remains the same and contracts are normally governed by common law. There are some special provisions which you know, traders need to be conscious of, particularly if they're dealing with consumers. But for business-to-business contracts, you know, as long as they're complying with the Australian consumer law and they're not are behaving unfairly, then those rules still stay in place. The number one rule, of course, is you've got to read the contract. What does the contract actually say? If there is a written contract, if there's not a written contract, what are the terms? What's been implied? And so some of the big things with coronavirus are around the very problem that what people were thinking was their bargain at the time that they entered into the contract doesn't really be the bargain at the time that they've either got to pay for the goods or they're getting the goods or particularly services. And hospitality is probably a really good example of that. You know, hospitality sector, you had, I'm going to say two phases. You had phase one, which was uh, nobody is coming to these restaurants because they thought that it's not safe to do so, but that was short of compulsorily being shut down. And then phase two is obviously when they're shut down. What do you do in that situation? So if you're a trader who's supplying them or if you're a operator of one of those businesses, How do you deal with your customers? How do you deal with your suppliers? If you've supplied them, how do you get paid? So they're they're the legal questions and they're very practical commercial questions that are involved. It's Australian consumer law and then it is common law. And common law is just court cases, isn't it? Common law is court cases. The the Australian consumer law is, is dealing with examples like don't mislead and deceive. There's some warranties about fitness for purpose, those types of things. And nothing has changed with that. Absolutely nothing. And don't forget that uh, in the hierarchy of laws, Commonwealth statutory law prevails over state statutory law. And then state statutory law will prevail over common law. 
And so the common law principles of our contract go back centuries. When we go through the different scenarios, does it matter whether a recipient or supplier was subject to a government lockdown or whether they voluntarily closed their shop or operations? Yeah, it does. There are. This is going to get a playing out at some stage between people who have the money to play it out in the courts. But there are three things. So one is, has the contract been able to be performed and were both sides ready, willing and able or was somebody not able to do? And you've got concepts about termination. So whether somebody's repudiated or terminated. And they give rise to damages. But above that, there are two other principles that often get confused. And, and I'm going to say that even many lawyers, probably including myself, get confused about as well. So one of those is called frustration. So there's a principle of frustration. And the principle of frustration means that the contract cannot be performed, just cannot be performed in the way that the bargain was originally envisaged. Okay, and the other one is what we call force majeure. That is that there is an act, whether it's an act of government or an act of God, that prevents the contract from being performed. So in some circumstances where you have delivery of goods, for example, and one party can supply and the other can't, I would have said that the force majeure can't apply in those circumstances because the contract is capable of delivery, for example, by a supplier to a restaurant that can't operate. But on the other hand, if you're a supplier of a restaurant and you've got a booking and you are prevented from, by statutorily prevented from honouring that booking, uh, what does that mean? Is that a force majeure provision? And what does it mean when the contracts provide for that? So in some contracts, they'll have an express provision that says, if a force majeure event happens, then the parties, either party can rescind and there's no damages to either side. But many contracts won't have that type of provision. They'll just say, look, I've got you know a wedding that I've booked, my daughter's really excited, and all of a sudden I can't have the wedding at this venue. What am I going to do? And in those circumstances, you know, the supplier, you know, that is the wedding venue, has to look and say, firstly, what is my obligation? So what is my obligation under the Australian consumer law? You know, if you've paid a deposit, am I obliged to refund the deposit or can I offer, keep the deposit but offer an alternate date? Right? And so that's a little bit of working through with the, with the other party as to what you can do. But there's got to be an obligation at that point in time of the, of the wedding venue host to make sure that the customer is satisfied one way or the other. If one side paid a deposit and the other side can't deliver or doesn't or doesn't want to deliver because they deem it to be well, too precious. Yeah. And then is there a right to get the deposit back? Because I think in the end... Yeah, that's the right, that's what I'm saying, deposit. Cody. You either have to satisfy the client, customer, that you are getting your deposit back or satisfy them about an alternate date. That's your first obligation. So that's your Australian consumer law obligation. There is a right to receive a refund of the deposit if due to force majeure, the um, service or the goods can't be delivered. Yeah, unless there's an express 
provision in the contract that says otherwise. And when you're looking back at the, is that express contract fair? Has there been anything in the writing of the contract that's misleading and deceptive? So all of these problems are gonna come into play, you know, probably over the next 12 or 24 months as these things play themselves out. There's no easy answer. There's no simple, straightforward answer. So it means always first look at the Australian consumer law and then look at the contract because the contract might exclude certain provisions of the Australian consumer law. I'll probably reverse it and say you look at the contract first and then you look at how you apply the Australian consumer law against the contract because it may be that some of the provisions of the contract are not permitted or that the Australian consumer law may override the contract in some way. And there are some provisions that say, well, you've actually expressly contemplated in your contract, this is how you're going to deal with something so that the Australian consumer law won't have the same impact as it might if you haven't expressly contemplated it. Is it even possible to make a general comment about what the Australian consumer law would say in the case that the contract doesn't say anything contradictory to it? Yeah, I'm prepared to make a general comment, which is if there's nothing in the contract, then the obligation of the supplier is to refund the deposit or come to an arrangement to satisfy the customer for an acceptable alternative. In the same way, and a better example is, if I sell you a toaster and the toaster doesn't work, my obligation is either to refund your money for that toaster or to give you a toaster that works. If force majeure stops them from taking delivery yeah, and then they don't um, have to pay yeah. for that. No, not necessarily. That's not quite right either. If they've ordered it and the the risk has already passed to the the purchaser, so the restaurant, for example, and all the, the supplier has to do is to deliver. So there's no reason why the supplier can't, as a matter of contract law, require the restaurant to pay for the goods that are being delivered, even though the restaurant may not be able to supply them to the purchases for whom they were originally intended. So if the truck is sitting in front of the restaurant and they want to deliver the prawns that had been ordered last week, then the restaurant can't suddenly turn around and say, no, we don't want the prawns anymore. Whether they accept them or not, that's their thing, but they need to pay because they They'll need to pay. Yeah. Because the supplier has fulfilled their obligations fulfilled under their obligation. the contract. Yeah. The example you're talking about, we call that in the categories we were talking about before, we call that repudiation. So essentially what the restaurant owner is trying to do is say, I don't want these anymore, please take them back. And then the, the what flows from that is the supplier then has to make a decision. So commercially, the supplier has to decide, do I take them back and try and sell them to somebody else and then say, I'm going to sue you, the restaurant, for the difference between what I have would have got if you had paid for them and I delivered them to you properly and what I was able to get for them because I had to sell them quickly to somebody else. And the supplier, in theory, as a matter of contract law, has a duty to what we call mitigate their damage. So if that happened, that's the legal process that would ought to, ought to be followed. Again, as a practical matter, the other thing that the supplier's got to think about is, will this restaurant actually be able to pay me even if I deliver? It's a very, very dangerous road that you've got to weave and you know they're difficult waters to navigate and i guess there are many gray areas if we continue this example of the restaurant with the prawns 
what if the um, restaurant calls two days in advance and says, yes, I know we ordered these prawns, but now we don't want them anymore. Two days in advance, could the um, restaurant still cancel? And I guess that it probably comes down to the contract then, doesn't it? It's the same principle. Yeah, All it's doing is you, if you're giving the vendor more time to find an alternative buyer for the prawns. That's the basic concept, basically. If you cancel something that you committed to, you need to give the other side a chance to mitigate the damage. And if they can't mitigate the damage, then you need to cover the damage that was caused by you rescinding on the contract. Yeah, loosely, yes. When the goods have been delivered, but the person can't pay. So when the goods have been delivered and the person can't pay, that happens all the time. And that's just pure straight insolvency. And it goes straight to insolvency, doesn't it? Well, but yeah, the supplier then sues or, or serves as statutory demand. That's filed, yeah, and, and the, the debtor company will then decide, should I put it into voluntary administration or liquidation or how I deal with it? Does that always involve a lawyer? It doesn't have to involve a lawyer. Often it's sensible to get somebody that knows what they're doing because, like anything, there's a form and you, if you make a mistake with the form, it won't be effective. But it's, it's simply saying, here's my form. I'm serving it on the registered office. You say in the form, you owe me dollars X. There's no reason why there's a dispute about the amount that you owe. And if you don't pay it within 21 days, then I have the right to apply to the court to make you, to wind you up. Now, one of the things that has happened in COVID is that there is now a six-month period that you've got. So if you serve a statute of demand, the debtor company has six months now to have it set aside. So you can't force a wind-up within the next six months. So what's the name of this form? I assume it's a simple form you can just download statute from the demand. internet. I've never looked for it on the internet, but I assume that you'd be able to get examples on the internet. So you fill out this form, you serve it to the registered office of the person who received your goods or services. Yeah. And then you have to usually wait 21 days, but now you have to wait six months. Yeah. And then you can apply to the court. And which court is that? Either the Supreme Court or Federal Court. You have a choice. Is it the only change to our insolvency laws under COVID-19 that the 21 days changed to six months or is there more under COVID-19? The other highlight is that there are certain defences now that are available for directors for insolvent trading in this period. Yes, the risk of insolvent trading is not as acute at the moment as it usually yeah. would. It's a vexed question because on the one hand, the tax office is trying to tighten the screws about what they call Phoenix arrangements and really tighten that up. But on the other hand, they want to give people the opportunity to restructure companies to keep people in employment. So one of the things that they've looked at is to say, well, can you consult with an expert, so a, typically an insolvency practitioner, to help you with a workaround plan, and that will provide directors with protection. Don't forget that what we're talking about is, can the directors be sued personally for trading while insolvent, and are they committing a criminal offence? For allowing a company to trade while insolvent. So yeah, employing an expert, that's the change that's happened within the last couple of years. The other thing, point I'd really like to make, Heidi, of course, is that when you get to the end of the six months, the debts haven't gone away. So what are the companies, what are the directors going to do at that point in time? And, and does it mean that we'll have a flood of companies that um, haven't recovered 
to the extent that they needed to to be surplus and then the directors are in a position where they've got to put the companies into some form of external administration. So we will now in October? Yeah, maybe. So that's basically what you do if you are not getting your money because the recipient of your services can't pay. Of course, the, the question then also is always, do you want to burn the relationship with your customers by suing them for payment during this period? But that's a different question. The last question with respect to goods is, what happens if I ordered the goods, but they arrived late because postal delivery is very slow now, and hence I don't need them anymore? What's the legal situation then? So again, what you're looking at is what's your contract, what what are you implying in the terms of your contract, and what does the consumer law say? So if it's a good that has a natural expiry, you know, because it's, for example, prawns, and you know, no one really wants the prawns once they've gone past their use-by date, then that's not going to have been delivered. The contract won't have been delivered. There'll be an implied warranty that's been breached. The supplier won't be able to collect. If, however, it's something that doesn't have an expiry date or that, that, you know, there's plenty of period to go, it's just that you can't sell them at the, on-sell them at, at the time that you're expecting, that's a little bit more difficult because then you've got to look at what is the contract. So you're not in the consumer law territory anymore. You're now in the, what is the contract say? What is the term of the contract when delivery was expected by? And what's the penalty for failure to deliver on time? Or was it an essential term? So when you're looking at contracts, one of the things, Heidi, is that you, the way you read contracts is you've got to look at what terms are essential terms that give the counterparty a right to terminate if it's not applied with and what are non-essential terms which simply give right to a rise to damages. So in that situation, firstly, you've got to identify, yes, it was essential that the goods be delivered by a particular time. If it was an essential term, then you're entitled to reject, you're entitled to terminate the contract because the person, the supplier hasn't complied with that essential term. But if it's a non-essential term, then what you're looking at is, what is my damage that I've suffered? Because yes, the goods have been delivered to me, but I can't make as much money from on-selling them as I thought I was going to be able to. Actually, Jeff, just a very quick question. The Australian consumer law only covers B2C, correct? So no. when you, ah, so the Australian consumer law also covers B2B? Yes. And there are certain circumstances where it does. So, for example, let me put it this way. If I am supplying, I supply a car to a dealer and the dealer supplies a car to a consumer. So everybody's familiar, car, dealer to consumer, no problem. That's quite easily understood. But it necessarily follows that the manufacturer knows that the manufacturer is supplying a car to a dealer for the purpose of the dealer supplying to the customer. So it's going to be an implied warranty and a statutory warranty that the car is fit for the dealer to supply to its customer. Okay. If the end user of the goods is a consumer, then the Australian consumer law applies through the entire supply chain. Yes. But what if the car goes to a business? Does then Australian consumer law apply? Yes. Yes, it does. Yes. Oh, I see. So when does Australian consumer law not apply to a delivery of goods or services? So there are some contracts which don't apply. So contracts of insurance, contracts for storage, transportation and storage of goods for business supplies of gas, electric, you know, utility supplies. Uh, and there are some circumstances where suppliers are entitled contractually 
to limit the... Application of the Australian Consumer Law. Yeah, to, to limit it. But sometimes when you can't do that. And then the definition of consumer, consumer contract is contract for supply to an individual who acquires the relevant goods or services wholly or predominantly for personal, domestic or household use, which we understand. And then there's a, a particular in Victoria, it's the, the, the ACL definition of the term consumer contract contains a subjective element. It goes on, the explanatory memorandum says this, the definition does not limit the operation of the unfair contract terms provisions to things of a personal, domestic or household nature and would include the supply of any good service or interest to a consumer provided the acquisition of what is supplied under the contract is predominantly for personal, domestic or household use consumption. Does that help in any way or yes. probably? So it means the Australian consumer law basically mainly applies to the provision of goods. And services. But as long as it usually goes to private households, then the Australian consumer law applies. If it's a technical widget that a private household would very rarely need, then the Australian consumer law probably doesn't apply. Yeah, loosely, yes. My point is that you take that standard and that standard then is implied between the contract between the, the, the supplier to the consumer and the person that is supplying that supplier. So that's where you get it down the chain. If people down the chain know that ultimately this is going to a consumer, then there will be an implied warranty for fitness for purpose. And then last question, is your experience in this area that most small businesses don't bother with lodging a form, a statutory demand and going to court? Most people will just write off the supplier, not do business with him or her again and, and just move on. Is that your experience? Yes, it's a numbers because what you're looking at is how much does it cost to go through that process? So typically just even the court process of you lodge a statutory demand and then you go and take them to wind up, you're spending at a minimum on the court costs a couple of thousand dollars, right? That's even if you did it yourself. So you need to make sure that what you're spending is going to justify the return. So typically people, small business, only use that as a device because they think it will bring sufficient pressure to bear on the recipient to deal with them in some way. The most common, the two people that use statutory demands the most often are the tax office and workers' compensation premium collectors. So that means for, for the others, for normal mortals, it basically comes down to possession. If you have the money or the goods, you're in the stronger position. If you don't have the money or the goods, then you're in the weaker position and might have to cut right. your losses. That's exactly right. Welcome back. So while conditions for employment contracts, lease contracts and tax payments have changed for the duration of the pandemic, contract law pretty much ticks along as usual, unless you get close to insolvency. Then you have six months instead of 21 days and the rules around insolvent trading are less strict. Next week, we will start with regular episodes again, and hopefully it will be time to look up, to look ahead, to think about life after COVID-19. Thank you for listening, and thank you to Klaus for their support. Bye for now, and see you in the next episode.